0: Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we'll be reading up through chapter 3, verse 4. Let's give careful attention now to God's Holy Word, beginning in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, A light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples, you who make your boast in the law? Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged." May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the, Lord's, seeking the Lord's help and relying upon his Holy Spirit this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Let's focus our attention this morning, especially on verse 4. We're reminded of the context here that in the second half of Romans 1, Paul has unleashed a dynamic critique of the pagan Gentile world, the Greco-Roman culture that has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, rebelled against God. By nature they know there is a God and that there is judgment for such things, but they continue to do these things and to approve those who sin against God but Paul begins chapter 2 by speaking primarily to the Jews, either the unconverted Pharisees of the Jewish synagogue or those in the church that in some way were influenced by them. He says, therefore you, therefore you, and we said that this word you appears 35 times, I think it was, in the 29 verses in chapter 2. He's addressing his words to those who agree with the criticism of the Gentiles. Those who say, yes, amen, Paul, absolutely. The Gentiles are under the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven. They're full of ungodliness and unrighteousness. But Paul says, yes, but now you have to realize this is universal. This is a problem not just for them but for you. And in connection with that evangelistic appeal, where he seeks to convict the Jew of sin, verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? As we've said, Paul is speaking to us. He's speaking to the Jews who agreed that the Gentiles were headed for hell. But he's speaking to us because I hope we agree that the wicked culture around us is headed for hell. I hope we agree 100% with Paul's criticism of the wicked humanistic rebellion against God that took place in the first century and is taking place around us. I hope we're all on the same page that we can say amen to that. But the fact is, Paul is then saying, okay, you who judge the Gentiles to be in sin and under God's wrath, you who judge the Gentiles for their wicked decline into perversion and chaos you who are judging and making these moral judgments do you recognize that this has implications for you for your standing with God and according to Paul we know we know he's able to speak to the you in this dialogue which is us he's able to speak to them and he's able to say you and I we know We know, verse 2, we know in our consciences that God will punish those who commit the sins that we commit. It's inescapable. God's made us in His image. Uh, We don't even have to have our thinking caps on at the moment to recognize uh, in our consciences that God will punish those who commit the same sins that we commit. There are sins people are committing. We say, yes, a holy, just God will judge those things. Uh, We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And we could go through chapter 1 and we could list all the sins that God will judge. And we'd say, yes, we agree God is going to judge those things according to truth. God is perfect in all His ways. And he has all the facts, he's all-knowing, and he's not going to let sin go unpunished. Uh, He forgives sin, but he does not clear the guilty, as he reveals throughout the Scriptures about his character. Yep, we agree, those who commit these sins are going to be punished. And if we would go through the verses in Romans 1 to look at these sins, we would have to admit that we commit some of these things. You're following the logic of Paul here. You agree these things are sins. You believe the people that are committing them are under the judgment of God. And if you look at those sins, you could admit that you've committed those sins. Perhaps you're continuing to commit some of these kinds of sins. Remember what was on that list. It was comprehensive in a way. All unrighteousness. But uh, sexual sin. Covetousness, we're discontented, we're wanting things we don't have. Maliciousness, envy, murder, okay, well, I'm feeling good about that, haven't murdered anybody, but strife, okay, am I quarreling? Deceit. Have I ever been dishonest? Whisperers, backbiters, boasters. You know, who here has never boasted who here has never been undiscerning or disobedient to parents or unloving or unforgiving or unmerciful the fact is we know these are sins we know the gentiles as it were will be judged for these sins and we admit that we commit these sins but for some reason paul is observing here for some reason we don't we're not able to do the math to then say well therefore I'm under the judgment and wrath of God for these things. We can follow all the premises, but when it comes to putting two and two together, we continually get five. And and for some reason, we can't follow the math, follow the logic. We know that God will punish those who commit the sins that we commit, but when it comes to us, we say, no, not, not us. Not me. And of course, That was the problem with the Jews that God Himself through Moses in the Old Testament warned them that when He gave them this law that instead of applying it first and foremost to themselves they would be tempted to use it to bludgeon the outside world to condemn the Gentiles and not to evaluate their own hearts. You see this in Deuteronomy 29 verse 19. God warns of the root of bitterness or wormwood that would rise up. He says, and so it may not happen. In other words, He's urging them, don't let this happen. That when a person hears the words of this curse, so God is cursing sin. He's cursing these sins that we know people that commit them are going to be cursed. We acknowledge that. We admit that we've committed them. But for some reason, He's saying, you've got to be careful that among you, that when a person hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my own heart. You see what, what this person is saying? They're not saying everybody has a blank check to sin. They're saying, I'm different. I shall have peace. Maybe those other people won't, but for various reasons, I shall have peace, Even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Or as the King James, I think, rightly says, adding drunkenness to thirst. So I have this thirst for drunkenness and I just satisfy it again and again and again. And follow the dictates of my heart and of my sinful appetites. And I acknowledge the curse of God against the sins that I commit in the abstract and for other people, but not for myself, not me. I bless myself in my heart. I'm going to have peace though I get drunk, though I engage in sexual sin, sinful anger, dishonesty, uh, sins of omission. God pours out His wrath and fury on the Gentiles who don't call upon God. So, oh, I'm prayerless. Or my family is prayerless. Or we're, we're not seeking the Lord. They're sins of omission. Yes, God's going to pour His fury on the Gentiles who aren't praying and worshiping Him. But what about, what about me? What about us? It's interesting. I was listening to a sermon a couple weeks ago. I honestly can't remember who it was. It was probably Reverend Stewart and Stornoway. But whoever it was, gave an illustration that as uh, psychologists were seeking to help people with eating disorders, that they would try to persuade them that they had a disorder. And so they, they would take a picture of the person who had the disorder and then they would put it with a number of other pictures and there, in, in all of the pictures of the people that they showed the person, there were no faces visible in the picture. So it was just the body of the person. And they would go through this stack of pictures And the person would look and they would say, does this person have an eating disorder? Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, so long as the person's face wasn't visible, they would acknowledge even that the picture of their own body indicated that they had an eating disorder. But if you ask them, do you have an eating disorder, they would say no. And this reveals the human heart. We know in our consciences that certain things are sins, that God will punish them, and we admit that we commit those things in one sense, but when it really comes home to roost, we're in denial. We're living in denial. We just can't see it in ourselves. Perhaps it's the log in our own eye, and we're too worried about the speck in somebody else's eye. Who knows? But that's human nature. Sin blinds us to sin. Even though we acknowledge really all the premises that would be necessary to conclude that we're under the judgment of God. Somehow, Paul says, somehow we persuade ourselves that we're exempt and that we will escape God's judgment. And you can see this in verse 3. And do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. See, he's confronting us for this this phenomenon that takes place where we, we see the pictures, we see the sin, but the moment it comes home to apply it to ourselves, we can't see it. And he says, is that really the case? Do you really think, do you really think this doesn't apply to you? Do you really think that you're going to escape the judgment that you acknowledge upon other people for their sin? And it's implied here... Well, why do you think that? Do you think it? And well, how do you think you're going to escape? What, what's the rational basis, if there is one, for your belief that you are going to escape the judgment and wrath of God? And throughout the remainder of this chapter, Paul is addressing at least four arguments by which The Jew would try to say, I'm different, I'm I'm exempt, I will escape the judgment of God. And this morning, we're just going to consider the first of these arguments. And the first one is very simple, the riches of God's goodness towards us. You see it in verse 4. Paul begins immediately to strike at the heart of the Jewish belief that we're exempt we're going to escape. We're different. We're okay. Paul addresses the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, which the Jew was no doubt conscious of. Now, in a sense, we should all be conscious of God's goodness and his forbearance and his long suffering towards us. The Bible teaches that God has this general benevolence or goodness that He manifests in the world around us. We saw it in our call to worship. His tender mercies are over all His works. All His works shall praise Him. Uh, he, He is good to all. See these statements in Psalm 145? They're really repeated throughout the Scriptures. Jesus says that God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. He sends rain and sunshine on the just and on the unjust. Now, this is a temporary blessing that God pours out on, you know, on the world. It's temporary. And as we'll see in subsequent verses and su- subsequent sermons, God willing, He keeps tabs on all the good things He gives in this life, and we will be accountable for them on Judgment Day. And if we don't use them in the right way, if we don't give thanks, And if we're not drawn to repentance and faith and giving Him thanks for these things as they've been appointed and designed to promote, if that doesn't happen, we're actually storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, but whatever gifts we receive in this life, temporally and in an earthly context, if we waste them, they become debits against us on the day of judgment. But it is true that God has a general benevolence toward mankind. You see this in Acts 14, verse 17. The Apostle says, Nevertheless, God did not leave Himself without witness, in that He did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You can see this as well in Psalm 17. Psalm 17, verse 14. With your hand from men, O Lord... Well, let me me start halfway through the verse. Let's see. The second line of the verse. From men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, meaning the believer, I will see your face in righteousness. So I'm going to go to heaven, but there are unbelievers who experience your good gifts, your hidden treasure. You give them food and wealth and children. They experience your goodness in this life and in this world, God is kind, as Jesus says, to the unthankful and to the evil. And that's why in Romans 1.21, Paul tells us that even the Gentiles who were outside of the covenant of promise, without hope, without Christ, without God in the world, nevertheless, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Well. Why do they have a duty to be thankful if they didn't receive anything to be thankful for? See, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense to deny God's goodness in some sense, in an earthly, temporary sense, to the ungodly. Otherwise, why are they condemned for not thanking Him? So, God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil, and they'll be judged for their evil, unthankful hearts because of the fact that He's given them so many things to enjoy in this world. So God's general benevolence by which in His providence He protects us from things, whether you're a Christian or not, you're protected from many evils that could befall you. You're given life and breath. You're given whatever resources that you have, whatever friendships, relationships, children, spouse, family, all of these things which Paul says as we read in Acts These things give joy to your heart at times. And that's the general benevolence of God. But the fact of the matter is, that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. It's true, it's applicable to all of us, which means that we can all relate to the logic of Paul's argument. But primarily, Paul is dealing with the covenantal blessing that God gave to Israel and to the Jews. The outward, earthly, temporal, covenant blessings that God poured out upon His people throughout the centuries and was even the case in the first century as as they were rejecting Christ and and, uh, this transition into the new covenant. There were still many things for which they could be thankful and for which they ought to have given thanks. Covenantal blessings. Uh, You can see in... Exodus 19, verse 4, a reference to this. Exodus 19, verse 4, speaking of how God rescued and delivered the people of Israel who were mostly unconverted. This generation eventually died in the wilderness, but He rescued them from bondage in Egypt. And He says in this verse, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, the ten plagues. The, the collapsing of the waters of the Red Sea upon Pharaoh and his hosts. You saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. These people are not saved, most of them, but God outwardly delivered them from bondage, and they saw it, how He bore them on eagle's wings. You see this again in Deuteronomy 4, verse 32. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened, or anything like it has been heard, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, and as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for Himself a nation from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God. There is none other besides Him. It goes on and on. Verse 37, because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants. God privileged Israel. He blessed them. He protected them. He delivered them. A mixed multitude of believers and unbelievers. The goodness. The forbearance. The long-suffering. So He gave them many good gifts. He forbore their sins. In other words, He was patient with them. He didn't immediately send fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy them whenever they sinned. He was patient with them. And He was patient for a long time with them. Long suffering. He was patient with them for 40 years in the wilderness. He was patient for centuries. He constantly gave them more and more time to repent more and more time to turn to Him and receive His forgiveness. 400 years of silence before the coming of Christ between Malachi and Matthew's Gospel. And yet, God was patient in preserving and protecting them. And in the fullness of time, He sent His Son to them. His goodness, giving them good things. His forbearance, His patience. His patience for long periods of time of time. Listen to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63 verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He has bestowed on them according to His mercies, according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses For He said, surely they are My people, children who will not lie. So He became their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. And He bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So He turned Himself against them as an enemy and fought against them. What's it saying? It's describing the outward deliverance from bondage in Egypt. And it's saying that God bestowed all these good gifts. He protected them. He was patient with them. And they rebelled time and time again. And He bore them. He carried them. And eventually, they fell under His wrath when the clock hit zero and and the time was up. But you see from all of this, how foolish it is to conclude that because God has been good to us in this life, because He's been patient and long-suffering towards us outwardly in this life, that for that reason, we're good and we're not under His judgment. And my friends, that is a conclusion that many people today draw. In some sense, it's one of the most common reasons for presumption within the professing church of Jesus Christ. How many people have we asked to share their testimony and they've said, when we've been doing evangelism, even people at times that visit the church, they've said that their testimony is that God healed them from cancer. Or God helped them get a job promotion. Or God was good and kind to them in some outward external earthly way. God blesses me he gives me life every day every day I get up and and he's helping me and and giving me all that I need and that's their testimony that's it nothing about sin nothing about salvation nothing about the wrath of God the mercy of God through Jesus Christ at the cross the thinking is how could I possibly be under the wrath of God if God is blessing me and not judging me at the present time. That's the argument. That's what the Jews were saying in Paul's day. Listen, we have a long history. Listen, we're Abraham's children. We have Abraham as our father, John the Baptist. We don't need to be worried about the axe being laid to the root of the tree. We don't have to be concerned about sin or repentance. Because if we're under the wrath of God, then why are we being blessed outwardly? if we're under the wrath of God, why don't we see that wrath of God? Why don't we see it manifested right here, right now? We're doing the things that you say are going to bring the wrath of God, but we don't see the wrath of God, Noah. We don't see any flood. We don't see, we don't feel the raindrops. So why are you building an ark? Why do we need to get in the ark? Who cares? God is blessing us. We're healthy, we're wealthy, we're comfortable. We don't see God's wrath and condemnation and judgment in our experience and in our circumstances. We see His goodness. I mean, look at America. It must be the godliest, most righteous nation in the history of the world. Because look at the benefits. Look at the liberty. Look at the wealth. Look at the influence. Look at the prosperity. If we're really one of the most wicked nations in the world then why would we be experiencing such blessing? And why wouldn't we see even greater manifestations of the wrath of God against us? This is the classic age-old argument, and we need to be familiar with it. Because it's an argument that leads us to hell. It's a dangerous argument. I can recall some of us were knocking on doors in the local community here in Southfield a number of years ago, and we just so happened to find ourselves in a more conservative i want to say orthodox jewish neighborhood and of course it was a saturday so we were trying to be respectful and and careful and yet handing out tracts that had been designed to, uh, to give to Jewish people. And so we're, we're putting these on people's uh, doors. We weren't knocking on the door because we didn't want to disrupt their, their uh, version of the Sabbath or whatever. And so we're doing this, and we put, it on, we put the tract on uh, one person's door, and he came out immediately and, uh, and confronted us. And I'll never forget, he, he said to us, we Jews are okay. And he was very dogmatic about this. Uh, we Jews are okay and that's the sort of response Jesus who was Jewish by the way Paul who was Jewish that's the response that they got when they proclaimed the gospel to the first century Jews we Jews are okay we have Abraham as our father John chapter 8 Jesus says you need to be set free from sin they say we're Abraham's children we've not been in bondage to anyone We don't need to be set free. We have the liberties and the outward benefits from God that we need. And so, we Jews are okay. And you know, there are many people today who are professing Christians. And they say, well, we Christians are okay. And by Christian, they mean someone who attends a Christian church. Someone who's not a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist. Uh, We're okay. And Paul is confronting that vigorously in this passage. And according to Paul, God's goodness and patience are not designed to perpetuate the sinful status quo. God's earthly, temporary goodness and patience and long-suffering are not designed to affirm the status quo in your life that God is rewarding you. And America, the largest exporter of pornography in the entire world, I think it's like 90% of the pornography in the world comes from America. Paul is saying, don't think that just because your nation, or your family, or your demographic, or you as an individual receive God's temporary goodness and patience in this life, that somehow God is affirming that you're okay. He's not saying that. He's saying, in fact, that God's goodness leads you to repentance. Repentance. God's goodness is designed by the very nature of the case to promote repentance. It's designed to say the God that you're sinning against is is so good that by the time you get to judgment day, there will be no excuse that your life of unrepentant sin will have stored up so much wrath against so good and gracious a God that when you stand before Him on judgment day, you're going to be in big trouble not just because of your sin, but because of how good and kind He was to you in your unthankful, evil lifestyle. This is making it worse. And so it's all the more reason to repent. God's goodness leads you to repentance. And there are really two aspects to this word lead. I think at the very least it means that it urges you to repentance. It points you to the need for repentance but also oftentimes the Lord by His Holy Spirit when He saves people will actually use the goodness and the patience and the long suffering of God even in this life, He'll use it as an instrument to to actually bring about repentance in the hearts of sinners. You see this with the prodigal son. He's in the pigsty. And he remembers that in his father's house, there is bread enough and to spare. He remembers the good things and the the generous things bestowed upon Him by His Father. He remembers His kind and merciful and generous and benevolent Father. And in the context of being convicted of His sin and His misery, it's that goodness of His Father that helps to draw Him to repentance and to arise and go to His Father. Now we need to be careful here. There are people that would extract this verse out of its context and make a mess of biblical evangelism. So the point here when Paul says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The point here is not to say, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance, not the conviction of sin. Right? There are people that quote this verse in that way and, and they're wrong. Because that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance, not the reality of God's wrath and conviction of sin. Because if you look at chapter 2, the whole context of this verse is the need for conviction of sin and of the wrath of God. So we shouldn't reshape biblical evangelism to say, look at how good God's been to you in your life. Look at all the good blessings that He's brought into your life and so on and so forth. Look at all of this bounty as an American and all the wealth and prosperity and liberty. Doesn't that just make you want to become a Christian? That's not the kind of evangelism that Paul has in mind here. The entire chapter is based on the idea that you are a sinner, you need to repent. Now, it may be the case in in some instances when we're dealing with people who don't understand the goodness of God that we do need to mention these things. Like Jesus with the woman at the well. He mentions her sin. But He begins by mentioning the goodness of God, the salvation that is available to her by faith, the living water that will satisfy her soul. He speaks to a woman who perhaps wasn't fully grappling with the goodness of God, hadn't been given a a good representation of God's generosity and His kindness, and she'd been offended by many Jews who wouldn't even talk to a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. So Jesus wisely begins with the goodness of God to minister to a woman who didn't understand that goodness. And then eventually He gets to her sin. But the Jews understood God's goodness. They understood His goodness so much, they were using it as an argument as to why they didn't need to repent. And my friends, when we're dealing with that type of situation, we can't can't proclaim an American gospel of health and wealth and goodness and, uh, and a bed of roses. We need to use the law of God as Paul does in this chapter. Yes, there are times to lead with the goodness of God. We're not here to be the the evangelism police. Oh, you know, you didn't talk enough about the law. You didn't talk enough about the gospel. But we are here to say, Paul's gospel begins with the law. It begins with the law. It promotes conviction of sin. Paul is saying, the goodness of God leads to repentance not complacency. That's the reason he emphasizes this. It's not that the goodness of God rather than the law leads to repentance. But the goodness of God leads to repentance rather than complacency. So whatever good things God's done in your life, use it as a reminder to repent of sin. We could go through the entire Old Testament Again and again, when Moses and the prophets emphasize God's goodness to His people, it is the case time and time again that the very next thing they say is, okay, therefore, you need to repent. You need to be faithful to God. You need to keep His commandments. He's done all this. How much more accountable are you? His goodness points you and leads you to repentance rather than to complacency. Second Peter 3 addresses this. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Understand, His long-suffering is a window of opportunity for repentance. That's why it's there. It serves to deepen our sense of the conviction of sin, and of the wrath of God, and to give us a sense that God has lovingly given us a window, let's take that opportunity. He goes on in verse 15, uh, 2 Peter 3, consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. The fact that you have good things in your life today, and that you're still here, living and breathing in this world today, is an opportunity for salvation. That's all. That's what it is. If we take it as anything other than that, then we misuse it, we abuse it, we misunderstand it. And my friends, our evil hearts by nature are so prone to pervert and abuse God's goodness by turning it into a reason not to repent. Repent. Well, I'll get around to that. As the prodigal says, I will arise and go to my Father. And thankfully, he immediately then arose and went to his Father. But so often we put it off. So often we say, well, God's given me this much time. I'm going to live for quite a long time. I'm going to continue in this sin for a while. And then I'll repent later. We don't sense the urgency that we are all standing right now on the brink of eternity. And we're not guaranteed another moment. His long-suffering is salvation, but His long-suffering is not guaranteed. As the clock ticks, uh, God's long-suffering continues towards you and towards me. But we're so prone to take it for granted, especially in a couple of ways, three ways specifically. When God grants ease and comfort, when God grants perhaps a season of ease and comfort this was actually a rather perplexing phenomenon for Asaph in Psalm 73 a believer who's watching the unbelieving world around him presumably the Jewish culture that surrounded him he's watching the wicked those who profess God but are living in sin who don't have much time for faith and repentance and seeking first the kingdom of God Asaph is watching the wicked and they are living it up. To the point where he's even tempted to envy. Verse 4 of Psalm 73, For there are no pangs in their death, they're comfortable. But their strength is firm, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men, therefore pride serves as their necklace. So they're just wearing it, they're boasting in it, they're parading it, look at our wealth, look at our comfort, look at all that we have, violence covers them like a garment their eyes bulge with abundance they have more than their heart could wish isn't that true of us in this culture to a great extent now our sinful hearts keep wanting more so maybe eventually we do want more but we have more Exponentially more than most other people throughout the world. And for us here in this place, in many cases, far more than many people in our own culture, in our own zip code. More than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. We're proud by nature because of the ease and comfort that we've received in the providence of God. That's a temptation but that was never given to you to lead you to complacency, to put off repentance, or to think that you're good to go. God has given you these things to lead you to turn from your sin. He's given you these good things so that you would see how good He is, how faithful He is, and that if you put your trust in Him as a faithful Creator and as a Redeemer from sin, that He will deliver you from sin. But beware of the complacency of an easy and comfortable life. Beware of it. James 5, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Is that you? Are you being fattened by the goodness of God for the slaughter? Or are you being led to repentance? The second instance where this is so common is when God delays his judgment, his forbearance, his long suffering. God delays his judgment. We sang about this in Psalm 50, where the people of God become complacent. They think, look, God's God's showing us his blessing. We're taking his covenant upon our lips. God is our God. We're his people. We've made a covenant with him by sacrifice. We're bringing our offerings to the altar. We're coming to church. We're good. We're committing the sins that are mentioned there, but God has remained silent. If God really thinks this is a sin, then he's going to do more than confront me from a preacher in a pulpit or a brother or sister. He's going to confront me. God's not confronting me, God is silent. And the Lord says, because I kept silent, you thought that I was like you. And this is how we make an idol in our own imagination where we fancy that God is much like ourselves, that we think that this sin is justified, we think it's okay to continue in our sinful thoughts, our words, our actions, our unspiritual, prayerless negligence, ignoring God, days without number, we think that it's okay, God hasn't done anything, He hasn't disrupted my life. Um, I'm okay. God says, I'm not like you. I will confront you and rebuke you to your face and tear you to pieces. And my friends, what hypocrisy it is when God brings evil things into our lives and we say, well, how could a good God bring this into my life? But when He gives you good things, you ignore Him and you forget Him as if you're almost inviting Him to rattle your cage to get your attention. When God delays His judgment, understand that judgment is coming. And this is true. You may not be experiencing the great blessing and ease and comfort and wealth that, that we've been talking about. But you may just be thinking, well, God hasn't judged me. God hasn't punished me. God hasn't done anything to express His displeasure. Oh, my friend, do you want Him to do that? Is that? Are you asking Him? Are you challenging Him? my friend let his patience lead you to repentance thirdly this can happen when god's judgment is temporarily cut short you recall several years ago i preached on isaiah 21:12 watchman what of the night and what is the response of the watchman the day comes and also the night here we have a person who's going to the watchman going to the prophet Going to God's messenger at a time of night in the darkness. And asking, what of the night? They're in a place of darkness. And what does the watchman say? The day comes. In other words, there's going to be a temporary end to the night. The night will precede the daytime. There will be light. There will be good things. There will be a restoration temporarily. The day comes. But also the night. My friends, this is perhaps the most dangerous circumstance for for those who abuse the goodness of God when they sense affliction and they're brought to the verge of repentance under affliction, and then immediately the light returns, something bad happens. and and it seems that it's going to continue, and maybe I should turn to the Lord and repent, but then all of a sudden the light breaks in, and things are temporarily resolved, and everything's back to normal, and God's judgment is temporarily cut short. The day comes, but understand this from the watchman, but also the night. There may be a temporary reprieve. I remember our neighbor across the street lost his job when I was younger and he came to my parents and he was down in the dumps and depressed about it and he was interested in the gospel and seeking the Lord and reading a study Bible for a while but then he got a job his career went back on the up and up and it was as if nothing had ever happened to him the day came but sadly, in his case, also the night and the time of God's long-suffering waned and and uh, perhaps even came to an end the day comes also the night pharaoh pharaoh said i have sinned he was ready to let israel go when god judged some of the crops in egypt but then he noticed not all of the crops had been destroyed there were enough crops to continue and when god removed the plague time and time again what was pharaoh's response It was to harden his heart in impenitence. The day came. The plague was removed. But it was only temporary. He refused to repent. And eventually, he was destroyed. The book of Ecclesiastes says to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember Him now. Remember Him when you have an opportunity. Before the evil days come. Before the days when you can't really think and pray and meditate as easily because of physical difficulties or perhaps those days just will never come we're not guaranteed to live to an old age anyway but remember your creator in the days of your youth and it goes on to describe a time when the clouds return after the rain and you know what that's like as 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 our loved ones get older as we get older uh, there are these storms, there, there are these times when it's, there's a, perhaps a health problem or something happens toward the end of our loved one's life and, and, uh, and it's raining, it's storming, and then all of a sudden the sun comes out, uh, but then the clouds return and that process happens to the point where eventually the, the clouds just return and the vessel is broken at the fountain. My friends, repent while you have the time. Remember the Lord in the days of your youth. And the only way to escape is to flee to Christ. Don't be like Lot and his family that had to be wrenched out of their homes by the angels. They were lingering. Get out of Sodom. Flee and escape to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. And just in closing, I want to say this, that Paul is preaching to Pharisees. Let us never think that Pharisees cannot have their hearts softened. Let us never think that the self-righteous are these unforgivable sinners, unsavable sinners. Paul is dealing with Pharisees here because he used to be one. He was saved out of it. And he's confronting them with the desire that they would come to repentance. Let's never simply assume that anybody is beyond the grace of God. Just because they may fit the description that's given for us in chapter 2. Remember the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He did not only rejoice over the prodigal when he returned. We're told he pleaded with the elder brother. He pleaded with him to turn from his evil and envious ways and to come into the feast He pleaded with him and he said as his argument, look, all that I have is yours. I've been giving you these outward benefits. I've been patient with you for all these years. He pleaded with him. Even with the self-righteous Pharisee who proclaimed himself righteous and despised others, the Father was merciful and we're not told that he didn't repent. That parable leaves it intentionally open-ended because it is open-ended. It's open-ended for every person in this building. Will you respond to the goodness of God? Will you respond to His patience and His long-suffering which leads you to repentance? Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that You would cause this Gospel to take a powerful effect in our hearts, to take root deeply. We pray that You would humble us under a sense of our sin, of our inexcusableness, of our hypocrisy, of our self-righteousness, of the foolishness of blessing ourselves in our hearts as if we could simply add drunkenness to thirst and be okay. Lord, convict us. Lord, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness, His shed blood, that we may turn and be saved. We ask in His name. Amen.